You're listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Lubbock, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered, missional family of disciples making disciples and churches planting churches. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit RedeemerLubbock.org. Well, hey, good morning. Thanks, guys. Um, My name is Chris Cummings. Uh, I'm a part of the Redeemer Church Planting Residency. Um, I'm doing the residency kind of from a distance. Uh, My wife and I live in Galveston, Texas, but it's exciting to just be here with you guys this morning. Uh, We'll be leading a team to go plant a church in Tucson, Arizona. And uh, man, let me just say this as we kind of dive in. I I am absolutely honored and thrilled uh, just to be in this space with you all. Um, I have admired for a long time uh, the work that uh, God has been doing through this church and through the Redeemer Network, and I am seriously privileged to be a part of this family, to be a part of this network. And so let me just say thank you uh, for letting me just join you guys uh, this morning. And so, uh, like I said, uh, we live in, in Galveston, Texas currently. Uh, I, I uh, work as the college pastor, director of discipleship at our church uh, there. Uh, my wife uh, is with me this morning. Um, and we have back home, we have four kids in our house. Here's a picture of them. They're really cute. Uh, the picture's a little fuzzy, but they're super cute. Um, they did not inherit their looks from us, though. We uh, fostered and adopted all four of these kids. They are all from one family. Um, we got a phone call on a Friday morning at 10 a.m. that said, hey, we have three kids. Would you be willing to take them into your care? Uh, we said yes. 5 p.m. that same day, they infiltrated our home. And they have yet to leave. Uh, About five months after that, we got a phone call saying that mom gave birth to another one. uh, And then we said yes to him, picked him up from the hospital. And after about two years of battling court cases and caring for them as foster parents, on November 18th, 2021, we adopted all four. Uh, Now they are ours and they are ours forever. Um, And so we are super thrilled about that. Um, And as we adopted them into our care, one of the things that we did in the midst of the adoption process is we began to change their last name. And we gave them our last name because at this point in their life, they are no longer kids in the foster care system. After 878 days of being a kid in the foster care system, they now have a mom and a dad forever and a home forever. And we wanted their name to reflect that that they're not just in our house and therefore ours, but they are ours because we have given them this name. And the reality is that when it comes to names, names carry weight because names carry character. And then the reason why we gave them this name is because their character is shifting, their identity is shifting. They are ours now. Names carry weight because names carry character. The, the, the reason why some of us in this room don't like certain names is not necessarily because of the way it sounds, but because of the person or the character that name is attached to, right? So like there's some of us in this room that's like, when it comes to you uh, naming your future kids or your current kids, you're like, I'm never gonna name my kid Pam, right? Because I knew a Pam and that Pam was not a nice Pam. And that name for you has forever been tainted, Right? I don't know if you've noticed, but not a lot of little Adolfs running around. <laughs> I haven't met one. Not a lot of Judases. My guess is that because of the hit TV show, The Office, the name Dwight is not gonna be very popular in the future. 
Karen, pretty much done. It's run its course. Names carry weight because they carry character. It's not just something that we call to someone else to get their attention. It's the character behind them that is tied to that name. And I tell you that because this morning, as we continue our series in the book of Psalms, we're gonna dive into Psalm 8. And as we dive into Psalm 8, one of the first things that we're gonna notice is that the psalmist starts and ends the psalm with the exact same phrase. And this is the phrase in which he starts and ends. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalmist, as he opens and closes this psalm, focuses on the majesty and the splendor of the name of God. And the reason why is not because he thinks that God has a really sweet, awesome name. It's not like, man, Yahweh, that is dope. You have a cool name. It says there is a character tethered to that name that is majestic and beautiful and amazing. And what the psalmist is going to do in the rest of the psalm in between its opening and closing is tell us why the name and the character of God is indeed majestic in all the earth. And here's the conclusion he's gonna come to. And this is my main point for the entire sermon. So here it is, all right? The name of God is majestic in all the earth because he is transcendent and intimate. That's why. He is transcendent, meaning that he is high above everything else, that he is holy like none other, that there is all of creation and God stands alone as the creator of the universe. He is transcendent above everything. And yet at the same time, even in the midst of his greatness, he is intimate. He is personal. He is knowable. And as the psalmist realizes these two realities of God, that he is the greatest in all of the universe and at the same time personal to us, it leads him to praise. And what I want for us this morning is I want to lean into this and I want us to just simply marvel at the beauty and the majesty of God. Because here's the thing I think for many of us, I think oftentimes we, got, we get caught up in the busyness and the craziness of our life and of our jobs and of our families that we don't really spend time to just pause and look up and marvel at the beauty of God. Like, like we have four kids in our house. It is never quiet ever. And if your home is anything like ours, the soundtrack in your house is something like this. Hey, no, please stop that. Stop running with that in your hand. Please stop jumping off on the couch. Please do not ride the dog. Leave the dog alone. It's time to go to bed. The sun's not set yet. I know, but it's still time to go to bed. You'll learn about daylight savings later. We need to go to bed now. Get your jammies on, brush your teeth. What do you mean you still want water? Please go to bed so I can spend time with my spouse for 20 minutes before I fall asleep. And I think oftentimes we get caught up in the craziness of life that we don't take a moment just to look up and reflect and be in awe of the beauty and the wonder of God. 
And because our lives are often so busy, I think when it comes to coming to the word of God, I think here's what we often do. We quickly search for something that God is telling us to do so that we can follow him in these kind of things and follow him in obedience. And sometimes I think we forget that what God wants more than your actions is he just wants your heart. He just wants you to love him and be with him and enjoy him forever. That's the purpose in which you were created. And so here's what I wanna do this morning. I just want us to marvel at the majesty of God because there is none like him. And the psalmist is gonna show us exactly that. So Psalm 8, we're gonna dive in the first two verses. We're gonna do the first two verses, stop there, and then we'll kind of keep moving forward. It says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. The first thing the psalmist does, which is King David. So the first thing that David does in this psalm is he calls upon the name of the Lord. He says, O Lord, our Lord. In Hebrew, it's O Yahweh, our Adonai. The very first word in this entire psalm is the personal name of God, Yahweh. And as David calls upon the name of the Lord, he declares that there is something majestic about this name. There is something magnificent about this name. And the first thing he says is that this name fills the earth. And then as he takes a step back, he realizes not only does it fill the earth, but it exceeds the heavens. Like he steps back and we get this sense that he's looking up at the night sky. He's seeing the heavens, the stars above. And as he's looking up at the creation of God in the heavens, he begins to notice that the glory of God cannot be contained even to the outermost parts of the heavens. He says, God, even your glory is above the heavens. His son, King Solomon, will say something really similar in the book of 1 Kings. After Solomon gets done building the temple, he says this, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house I have built. What David and Solomon are saying is that when it comes to the glory of God, that it is far greater and far more magnificent than we know that even the heavens, the observable universe can not contain the glory and the majesty of God. That's how big he is. And then after the psalmist declares how great and majestic and mighty this God is, he then turns his attention sharply towards babies. He looks up at the night sky and says, God, this cannot contain you. And then he looks at the lowly and he says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, God, you have established your strength. I don't know if you spend a lot of time around babies, but if I'm about to conquer an enemy, I'm not picking them to be part of my team. I'm just not, I love my kids, but they're gonna be last on the pick, right? And yet this is who the psalmist says God uses to establish his strength. That it's out of the mouth of babies and infants 
We have a two-year-old in our house right now. He has this medical condition where he has to take this medicine at every single meal. And so we have these little capsules that we have to open up and we pour these capsules inside of an applesauce or a yogurt and then he eats it, right? Super simple, really easy for an adult to pull off, okay? And every single day, because he's a two-year-old and he insists, insists on helping us, he's like, don't worry guys, I've got it. And here's what happens. It's a guarantee every day. About 99.99999% of everything inside that capsule ends up everywhere except inside the applesauce. Like I swear, I, he, will, he will open it up downstairs and I will find pieces of it upstairs. I don't even know how that is possible, but it happens. And then he'll look at me like he just accomplished the greatest task in the world. He's like, I did it, daddy. And in my head, I'm thinking, son, you have no idea how much you failed. Like they, you really missed the mark. And so now what I have to do is I have to clean up the mess and secretly pour it in to his applesauce so that he still gets the medicine he needs. That's the life of a toddler. And the psalmist says that out of the mouth of infants and babies and toddlers, God declares his strength. What he's saying here is that out of what is weak in the world, God shows us how strong he is that God will often use what is weak to display the majesty and the splendor of his power. And he is able to conquer enemies through the mouths of babies and infants. So here's what the psalmist tells us in the very first two verses. The glory of God is far greater and far bigger than what we can possibly know and see. And that the strength of God is so great that he can take what is the weakest in the world and conquer enemies. What the psalmist is doing here is he is right-sizing God. He's saying, look and see at the majesty and the beauty and the splendor of God. Why is the name of the Lord great and majestic in all the earth? The very first reason the psalmist gives us is because he is transcendent above everything else. He is like no other. There is no one like this God. And as the psalmist sees the majesty and the magnitude of God Almighty, he begins to feel incredibly small. Look at what he says in verse three. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? He sees the greatness of God, the majesty of God. And as he sees God's greatness, he begins to feel incredibly small, crying out, God, what is man? Like, who am I in light of you? And this smallness that David begins to feel is the right response to the greatness of God. Because if our response to God's greatness and magnitude and majesty is with pride and not humility, we've missed it. We've missed the point of seeing how awesome this God is and how lowly we actually are in light of him. 
When we are in the presence of something great, it is not meant to lead us towards pride. If it does, we've missed the greatness. It's meant to lead us towards humility. No one stands before the Grand Canyon in order to boast in their own self-esteem. You go to be in awe. I remember earlier this year, we took a small team of our staff out to Tucson, Arizona to kind of show them the city and hopefully encourage some of them to come with us. And as we were out there, we drove up the Northern mountains in the Valley called the Catalina Mountains. And halfway up, three fourths of the way up, you get this view and it is stunning. You should all move to Tucson, Arizona. (laughs) Unapologetically, okay? You should all move. And we got to that view. We're not even all the way up the mountain. We got to that and we just had to stop. And we pulled over into this little parking lot area, got out and we were just in awe. We spent 30 to 45 minutes just staring at that. And you wanna know what happened while we were doing that? Not a single one of us saw the beauty that stood before us and said, you know what? I'm awesome. No, we felt insanely small because we were standing before something so incredibly majestic. And what's crazy is that we were standing before the majesty of this in front of you, feeling incredibly small, and that's something that God made We weren't even standing fully before him. That's just part of his creation. There's a whole world, a whole universe filled with it. And it led us to this place where we were feeling insanely small because when we stand before greatness, that's where it leads us. It doesn't lead us to pride. It leads us to humility. And David, as he sees the beauty and the majesty of God, he says, what is man? Who am I? in light of you. And here's the temptation. The temptation is when we see the greatness of God in light of the lowliness of humanity is to come to the conclusion that God doesn't actually care for us. That because God is so great and so majestic and that we are so low in comparison that he must clearly not actually care for you and me. But that's not what the psalmist says, does it? The psalmist says, who am I that you are mindful of me and the son of man that you care for me? And I think, man, there's some of us in this room today who we would say, if we were being honest with ourselves right now, we would have to honestly say, man, you know what? I don't know if God actually does care for me. Like maybe you did. Like years ago when life was good and great, but you just got a call from the doctor or you lost somebody you loved or people around you or you, you're going through different difficult things. And you can look back on when you were prospering and say, yeah, I know that God cares for me, but I don't know if he cares for me. Like at one point, I think that was true, but I don't know if it's still true now. But here's the thing, when the psalmist says that God cares for you, 
That word cared is not just a past tense. It's a continuous ongoing reality. Meaning that God has cared for you, God is caring for you, and God will care for you. And for some of you in this room, man, the one thing that you need to take away from this more than anything else is the simple fact and reminder that there is a God in heaven who has not forgotten about you. And he sees you and he loves you and he cares for you. Why is the name of the Lord majestic in all the earth? Because he is transcendent above everything else we can possibly know. At the same time, he is deeply, deeply intimate. He cares for us. And notice how he cares for us. Look at verse five. That you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. How do we know that God cares for us? The psalmist points back to the beginning of Genesis in Genesis 1 when God creates humanity. He says, how do I know that God cares for humanity? How do I know that God cares for me? Go look and see how he made us. They didn't just make humanity by, humanity by random accident or chance, but there was purpose behind it. There was thoughtfulness behind it. That he crowns humanity with glory. He crowns us with honor. He makes us just a little bit lower than the heavenly beings. He gives us dominion over everything, authority over everything. How do we know that God cares for us? The psalmist says, go look and see how God made humanity. It was not without care. It was not lackadaisical. It was with immense care and detail that he made humanity in the image of God. That's what he points back to. And as the psalmist points back to how God created humanity, there's probably a little bit of a stirring within us because the reality is that that's who God made us to be, but our present reality seems very dissimilar from that. Because what has happened is between Genesis 1 and Psalm 8, sin has entered into the world. And sin corrupts and distorts the image in which God creates us to live and thrive and be in. And we might get to a place where we might think, yeah, God cared for humanity when he made them, but now we're sinful and surely he doesn't anymore, but you would still be wrong. Even in the midst of your sin, God cares for you and there's no better place to see that beautiful reality than the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross of Jesus, we see this amazing transcendent God take on human flesh for you and me. He literally becomes like us to save us. You see, Psalm 8 is echoed all throughout the New Testament. And one of the places we see it most predominantly is in Hebrews chapter two. And this is what it says. It has been testified somewhere, talking about Psalm eight. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do, not, we do not 
yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What the author of Hebrews is doing by quoting Psalm 8 is he's saying that there is a man who perfectly fulfills what it means to be human in Psalm 8. And it's not us, it's Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. He came as, into, as, as one of us. He put on our flesh. And because of the suffering of Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, he now has everything in subjection under his feet. All authority bows before him. He has authority over everything. And because of him, he is renewing us and recreating us back into the image of what Psalm 8 declares us to be. He is the perfect fulfillment of Psalm 8 and he extends that to us so that we can reign with him, that we can rule with him, that we can be crowned with glory and honor along with him. To put it this way, God is so transcendent that there is none like him. And yet at the same time, he is so intimate that he became like us. Let me say that again. God is so transcendent that there is none like him and yet so intimate that he became like us. This is why in the New Testament, the apostle Paul says this in the book of Philippians. He says, in being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no name like the name of Jesus because there is no one like him and no other do we see the transcendent beautiful nature of God in such humility and lowliness he puts on flesh to become like us to save us and there's no name like his there's no name like his because his character is tethered to his name, but there's another reason why there's no name like his. You see, the name of Jesus is not an accidental name. God gives him the name Jesus. And here's what's fascinating about the name Jesus when you break it down. The name Jesus is the English transliteration for his Greek name, Jesus. And his Greek name, Jesus, is just another transliteration of his Hebrew name, which is Joshua. And there's two parts to the name Joshua. The first part to the name Joshua is the word Yah. The word Yah is short for the name Yahweh. When we think about the word hallelujah, the word hallelujah literally means praise Yahweh. And when we look at Jesus' name, the first part of his name is the word Yah, meaning Yahweh. The second part of his name is Yeshua. And what that word means is it means salvation which means that the name of Jesus literally means 
Yahweh saves. That's the actual meaning of his name. Why is the name of Jesus majestic in all the earth? Because he is Yahweh saves. He is transcendent above everything. And yet he is deeply personal and he cares for us. I think so often in our lives, we get so bogged down with the mundane that we lose sight of the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God. And I begin to think, how good would it be for our hearts and our souls and our relationship with Jesus if we would just spend unhurried, uninterrupted time dwelling in the presence and in the beauty of God. And man, I think we desperately need that. Because I think oftentimes when we live this Christian life, we begin to lose that wonder and splendor of who God is. And God, more than anything else, wants your heart. More than your actions, more than anything else you can give him, he wants your heart. And so let's pursue him and be and just marvel at the goodness and the greatness of who our God is. Jesus Christ, Yahweh saves. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, there is no one like you. God, you are holy like no other. You are majestic in all the earth. And yet, you are deeply intimate. You are knowable. You are for us. You are with us. And God, I pray that we would just enjoy the beauty of who you are. We marvel at your grace and at the nature of your majesty. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for the cross that saves us. In your name we pray.